This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hey, this is Sandra McCracken, and you are listening to Steadfast. This is a podcast where I sit down with friends, mentors, and people that I want to hear their stories, and we talk about how God's steadfast love has shown up in every season of our lives. My guest today is Peter Harris, and we had a conversation by phone. He lives in England. He and his wife, Miranda, are the founders of an international organization called Arasha, or some people call it Arosha. It's a Portuguese word that means the rock, and it is a unique organization, very family-oriented in the sense that all of the people that are part of this organization are connected as if they are family. They are a blend of faith, conservation, science, and it Reminds me a little bit of the story of Labrie and with Francis Schaeffer, although it has a slightly different angle in the sense that they live life together and gather around one table, but the efforts that they put forward are around science and what it is to care for the world, to ban birds and to keep records and to love our neighbors well and to love people in place. So I'm excited to introduce him to you if he is new for you and would just welcome you into this conversation. I think it's an important one, especially in this moment that we're in, both politically, socially, and all the ways. It's time that we pay attention to how our love shapes the places where we live. Well, I would love to start by remembering when I first met you and Miranda was in Nashville and I'd heard about Arasha and I heard about a meeting you were having and like at the Abbey House at a church in the middle of town. And I remember coming in that night and having had some experience with various Christian environmental groups in the United States. And there was something very different in the room that night. And I felt that the thing that I noticed most was that you and Miranda are poets and pastors in a space. I don't know if you would use those words, you know, small letters or, but I experienced your love for people and creation as kind of a pastoral small p call, like a pastor of ecology or And marked by two features that I noticed. One was joy and the other was lament, both of which are nuances that I had not seen widely in environmental circles. So I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that. How do you experience the call on your life in the work of Arasha and in who you are in this subject? I think the language you've used is very helpful. I think that we do understand this. The whole of Russia family around the world does understand what we're doing as first and foremost a response to a loving God. I think the idea that who we understand ourselves to be in the world is first and foremost in relationship. So in relationship to God, in relationship to each other, and in relationship to creation frames all of these very acute challenges that we have around the world now in a different way, because it's not just you up against a coalface. Mm-hmm. 
it's not just you at the foot of a mountain. Rather, you're part of something much wider and bigger. So you draw the character of what you do from the character of God, first and foremost. I know that sounds strange because people sometimes think of Arosha as a kind of an activist organization. And I think we'd like to be characterized or known by our living of it. But nevertheless, the character of it comes from the character of God and the character of our friends and the character of those who join us in this. And so I think it does lead you both to joy, because so much of that is wonderful, and to lament. But lament is done very carefully, as you know, within the Christian experience. It's not just a hopeless grieving that often, I think, secular media looking at environmental crises, and there are many, they want to take us to that place of despair. Hmm. But that's not where we can find ourselves. In one sense, it's a reworking, isn't it, of the whole issue of suffering, which has been so major in Christian reflection from the very start. That is beautifully said. And it makes me wonder what causes hope to most dim in your work? Are there places that you have to fight against that or does it flow up out of you naturally? These are good questions. I almost would like to turn it the other way around and say, what what causes hope to flourish? And I, <laughs> I think there's something about very specific places and very specific people that rebirths hope in us. I think of many places which have been under great threat and honestly where savvy action and wise work and committed praying have turned something around, often over rather a long period of time. Mm. Um, maybe being old gives you hope <laughs> because <laughs> you've, seen, you've seen a lot of, of, of ups and downs and apparent crises that have passed and nature is resilient. Mm. And, and so you've, you've seen things come back to life, which have been apparently beyond it. And so I think what causes hope to be reborn is often very specific. Who was it writing about, you know, our tendency to feel bad about ourselves? If that's a very general thing, it doesn't tend to be the Lord speaking to us. <laughs> if it's specific, it's something we can do something about. And I guess environmental lament is the same thing. If it's just a general sense of we're losing it, you can right. feel crushed. Yeah. But, but if you're present in particular places, and I know you've seen this in Nashville, yeah. you know, you can make a difference in that stream or that garden or that yard or, you, you know, yeah. and that course is a sign of the kingdom of God. We're not supposed to understand or live the kingdom of God in its fullness now, but for sure we're expected to see signs of it. And I think environmental work done by people who are faithful to the living God who cares for his creation is going to look like a sign of the kingdom. makes me think of 1 Corinthians 13. If, in fact, Paul is reflecting on what love is, and if love as we know it is also who God is, and at a very core, at his character, the first description is patience. So as you describe practical work in specific places, and you connect that in prayer, I think that that flows out, that we would see a demonstration of patience in the faithful work of showing up in the place and sitting around the table and expecting that God meets us in those places because He is patient. This is His demonstration of love. I would imagine you work alongside people that are very into the numbers. 
into the researching and the science, and then you have these deep relationships of living daily life together. Is there something that comes to mind that's an example of where hope is flourishing in one of these projects? Just quickly to your first point about patients, I think over the years we've discovered a number of distinctives about the way we go about conservation as Christians. It's not that the actual work often looks different. I mean, mm. planting a tree or, do you know? But <laughs> one of the distinctives, and we've tried to build this into our organizational structure, is inspired by the incarnation and has to do with long-term commitment. This has been noticed by, for example, Simon Stewart, who's the chair of the Species Survival Commission, saying that this is the real characteristic of Arosha. And then him pleading with environmental donors to understand that ecological timeframes don't always fit a three-year grant cycle. But to give you a specific example, I have to go back, I suppose, to the longest one. So nearly 35 years ago, we moved to the Alvor estuary in Portugal with our family, and we lived there 12 years and were in that center and carried out and began a number of studies during that time, many of which are now carrying on. And so they're very long data sets, and they often don't turn out significant in the ways you thought they were going to, but the data is still there, so you can revisit it. That's happened with the work on storm petrols which is now carried on by Cardiff University. And it's turned into a climate change study because sea temperatures have become critical. Well, we didn't know that when we started. But that estuary is a visible sign of the gospel written in the landscape. And journalists visiting from, you know, have pointed this out. Much of the southern coast of Portugal is now under concrete. And that whole area is not. And it's actually because Christians were there and committed. And in our relationships there, I mean, the estate manager, who was very hostile initially to what we were doing, because it seemed to thwart his hopes for a classic Algarve urbanization, came to see how that fragmented local communities, destroyed local agriculture, shut down possibilities for farming, brought drug temptations to the local young people. And 25 years later said to me in the street, well, I get it now. I see what you were talking about. (laughs) These are long relationships. These are long wavelengths. And our Times are not sympathetic to longer wavelengths, but for sure it seems to us that is God's choice in this world. And we have to live that in the tension of the urgency of the task where we are, you know, apparently losing species at something like, you know, 4,000 times the background rate of extinction that we should expect. So you hold again in tension, don't you, this urgency with resting in God's timeframes and being faithful to the relationships involved and to the length of time it takes. Anybody listening to this who wants to check, you know, go on Google Earth uh-huh. and look at the Alvor estuary and just run the cursor along the, <laughs> along the coastline. <laughs> And it's there to see. And you can do the same with the Minette site in Southall or the Valley. But, you know, there's lots of places uh, around the world that look different because Christians were there. In the Bekar Valley in Lebanon, where we've worked at Amik, Mm. is very similar. And uh, this is how the gospel is meant to be written in the landscape. And that handwriting is done like calligraphy with care. And it's not a scrawled note with a ballpoint. These places become such important reminders and visual, actual embodied evidence of the church and the kingdom of God moving. And I would say, though, as I've experienced the church in the West, we have such a struggle with patience and and such a love for immediacy and results. And you mentioned like the three-year grant cycle. I think our lives are geared toward results. If you're in business or commerce, it's like, you know, checking every quarter and seeing how the numbers do. And if it didn't work, we don't do it. 
And, you know, as a musician, I, I think there are parallels with the temptation to kind of move toward the quick flash in the pan growth versus being faithful to a long obedience in the same direction. And I do experience that formation in Christian community actually is designed to slow us down and help us to pay attention to the relationships and to the particulars. And yet we, I don't know, sometimes I just kind of want to <laughs> want a quick answer, a quick uh, resolution to a conflict. But the beauty really comes when I can be in it and be in it for a long time. And just imagining that conversation on the street 25 years later, realizing that you plant seeds and the seeds take time. And even that, you don't have control over all of that. But yet God is committed to bringing flourishing and, and fruition to those seeds of hope within us, even in spite of all the odds, right? <laughs> and one of my closest friends is a farmer, and we pray together often. And he's a very helpful reminder to me that the principal metaphors are organic mm -hmm. in biblical imagination. Yeah. One of the signs of hope, though, that I do see, as you may know, Sandra, I work quite a lot with people in the finance and business worlds, and mm -hmm. I see the ways in which their timeframes are so poorly equipped for ecological realities, and even realities in the real economy, because the real economy has to do with people. And and I see how there's a wide understanding that these faster metrics, these very narrow metrics, a single capital view of business rather than a multi-capital view of business, which takes mm. account of the human and the ecological and the wider context, there's an increasing disenchantment with that. And one has seen many catastrophes from an insistence that money is the only metric because the language of money is extraordinarily allied to technology and short term and it betrays us at every point we see that globally mm -hmm. and the, the work that was done in the so-called emerging economies around the world has really turned out that way now much to everybody's distress yeah it's a pervasive temptation to look to the gift, because the money's not the problem itself, the way we use those resources, the resources that are given and how we spend that. But even just in daily life with my own family, just to think like, oh, the, it, you know, having a check in the mailbox is not actually what gives me the security. But when I look to it for that, everything else kind of falls apart. If that becomes the affection, you know. Affection's a good word. You've written and talked about this disordered affection before. And mm -hmm. I think it's allowing money to occupy a place in our imagination and desires that it's never intended to. And I know you've mentioned your family. You know, it's good to have slow people in our lives, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You try hurrying a four-year-old. <laughs> you, you, you can't do that. You know, we, Miranda and I, really appreciate the slow people in our lives. We have a dear friend who's 91, and I have a friend here whose only movement now is with his fingers, so he talks through his iPad, and they are a great gift in our lives. They give us proper time mm -hmm. that, in your musician's language, is, of course, the pauses, the spaces, the beats that are occupied in a different way, mm -hmm. aren't they? So, yeah, this is something we have to particularly give attention to as people within Western culture. Yeah. You know, our African friends say, well, you guys have the watches and we have the time. <laughs> right. I love that. I mean, it's it's a hearty, genuine laugh to say that how much we need the slowness and the slow people and the way that children, they really lead us. I feel like my children lead me in the ability to stop and to wonder at things, to sit in the creek, to... It feels like a holy practice to actually sit with them and to take your shoes off and to 
get in the water and to ask the question about how does this work or where is this from or where does this water go? And when we're into all the busyness of keeping things moving and being adults and doing our lives and making things and making money, it's like those present reminders of slowness. And just last week I was at a camp with families of disabilities and it was, I mean, just an incredible opportunity to sit and to realize this is not about me offering performance and music, but it's about offering presence, which is in some ways a whole lot easier. And in other ways, it's, it's a whole lot more difficult. And you just have to bring that and be together in the slowness and in the lack of words. But it, I think as you move into those places of slowness, there is a renewed sense of God's presence because He moves into those places and He's not in a hurry. And so it begins to reframe, like you said, reframe our affections, our desires around a new order, a new order of things. Yeah, to recommend Isla Kreglinger's book on the spirituality of wine because she she oh, looks yes. very how without time you can't make great wine. Yeah. And so there's something that in Jesus choosing wine as mm. one of our Eucharistic elements to say, you know, it's not grain and grapes, it's bread mm. and it's wine. And none of those things are done in a hurry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. And there's something very important for us there. But I have to acknowledge in myself, and I heard it a little in you there talking about your last week, that the change down of the gears is mm-hmm. not always comfortable or easy. And there is a frustration in us. And mm-hmm. as you try to, you know, be changing the world in some way, whether through music or whatever, and there's that godly frustration and the groaning. And I would be dishonest if I said to you, I find this natural. I don't. Mm. But I recognize it as gift. Mm. And I recognize it as necessary discipline, which is not necessarily pleasant. But I will never understand God if I don't get my head around Mm. how his great and good creation of time is meant to work (laughs) in creation and in me. Again, kind of circling back to when I met you. And as you mentioned Arasha is a very relational organization and the places and the people. And I have just loved getting to meet the family of Arasha as it is so relational. Can you share a little bit about how your marriage was part of that too? Your home, your family table was part of this estuary and was kind of the centerpiece was the dining room table, right? She blew half the budget. Um <laughs> On that one table, it was a controversial moment. And uh, we've had those quite publicly in our marriage uh, in Russia. We rush to make sure that people know we're not the perfect couple or the perfect family. Um, mm. But you know, Christ is in us the hope of glory anyway. A number of things came together for us and for those who become part of the Arosha family all over the world. And it, incidentally, Sandra, they deeply appreciate you too. And, and your music has been important to us and will continue to be extraordinarily important to us. But the thank you. a number of things came together and they were to do with the recovery of relationship. 
And the understanding that community begins with our createdness and not with our choices for Christ, whatever they may be, without diminishing the significance of that choice. People have sometimes wanted to say, we don't think it matters. We do. We know what it means that people get saved. We know what it means to be saved. We yearn for that. But community does not begin there. Community begins with sharing a creator and is open to all comers. And then community is extended by createdness to all things that are loved by the living God. So it draws you into very practical conservation action. And so all of those things do come together for us because you can't try to live rightly with the people around you and not care for their place. And you can't care for place if your human relationships are being trashed by your activism or your ego Mm. or your insistence on being right about whatever. And so I go back, I suppose, to saying that our core business is recovering the knowledge of God in Christ, and its outworking is extraordinarily earthy and persistent and undramatic, and it has to do with entering data and banding birds and (laughs) removing invasive plants, and some of that, incidentally, can be extraordinarily repetitive and boring and Mm. difficult. And so it goes on. You know, it doesn't look dramatic. but It's almost liturgical in nature. It's like there's these things we do and we apply ourselves to. Yes, that's a good word. There are many liturgies. I try to practice the liturgy of the stairs in my city life. If a meeting, <laughs> if a meeting is less than eight, eight floors up, I'll walk it, not take the elevator, which is good for my heart, gives me time for prayer, mm. saves some carbon into the, you know, this is, <laughs> we have to be creative about liturgy now. We turn on a tap, and if we're fortunate to be in a part of the world where we can turn a tap on and there's clean water, mm-hmm. that's a liturgical moment right there. You know, mm. so life is punctuated by liturgy. But it's very boring, a lot of it. Mm, (laughs) I can't say it otherwise. I'm sorry. I think the invitation... It's right. I think it's right. But, you know, to keep... You're so winsome in the way you share the hope of the care for creation. And I think it's important to hold space to say like, yeah, a lot of these things are just tedious. You know, a lot of the aspects of actually working that out in day-to-day life is just tedious. And it's the same with relationship, with family, with faithfulness. It's so important to have an honest conversation about that and not just a lofty, idealistic one. Yes, I think Ben Lowe, who I really respect greatly, has talked quite a bit about this need to endure. In his case, he's looking at political reform and how to be a Christian in the public space. And Mm. his point is initial enthusiasms wear off Mm. very fast. And we've seen many environmental movements burn out, haven't we? And I think the life spring, the wellspring is found in Christ, in each other. And you do get glimpses of good results sometimes. It's really exciting when that happened. You know, our Kenyan colleague has been spending many nights over many years putting leg flags on migrating uh, shorebirds and, and an Indian guy lying on his stomach in the mud in in the west of India has just been starting to find these birds now. And nobody knew these East African birds were heading over that way and stopping there. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's been years and years and they've picked up two of them now. And my banding friend, Jerry, has just had a red tail hawk recovered after 20 years, you know, and these are good wavelengths. <laughs> this is worth waiting for. Yeah. So we are giving glimpses. I think, you know, the Lord says, He wants us to be sons and not servants. And that means you just get a little glimpse sometime of what he's doing in the world. And that's enough. That's good. We celebrate those moments. Actually, we used to celebrate them with seafood rice in our local cafe in Portugal. (laughs) There was a tradition of celebration with seafood rice. 
Bad news for the seafood, good news for us. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts around the words scarcity and abundance? Maybe particularly as it relates to a Western context. Like, so listeners may be here in Nashville or Tennessee or kind of all over the U.S., but we still, I think, experience life largely as abundance where we live because we don't feel the direct connection to the land in most cases, but it is becoming more prevalent. I was very impressed and helped by reading Ellen Davis's wonderful work. She's written a tremendous commentary on the Proverbs Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs, and also on agriculture and culture. And one of her interesting points is that actually Egypt was the place of abundance. You knew exactly when the Nile would flood. In fact, you watered it with your foot. You didn't have to bend down. You know, it was just and the promised land was this place of scarcity where it only rained if you were properly within the covenant and you had the desert to the east and then to the west you had what to the hebrew mind was the was the chaos and desert of the sea mm-hmm. so you're in a semi-arid land between two deserts dependent for blessing and rainfall on your relationship with god it was a covenantal mm-hmm. agriculture and i've reflected on this a lot as we've tried to grow in inverted commas, Arosha, because we've asked ourselves, does God want us in the place of scarcity or the place of abundance? And mm. I don't think there's an easy answer. Not that we've had many abundant years to reflect upon, mm-hmm. but I do think there's a creative scarcity and a very destructive scarcity, which is beyond the purposes of God. I, I think much of the misery in the world that we now see, and I don't mean poverty, I mean misery, mm is well beyond God's purposes and the consequence of our brokenness and sin Mm. and our unjust economic structures, the thinning of nature, what they're calling the thinning of nature. So it's not just the loss of individual species, but a lot of the current work on biodiversity is looking at the loss of life forms and how if you used to drive around a British lane 35 or 40 years ago in the summertime at dusk, you would be cleaning your windscreen the whole time of all the insects that would mush up on there. If you do it now, There's nothing hitting your windscreen. Mm. It's a quiet departure. And I think that that scarcity and the scarcity of misery and the scarcity for most in the world in their agriculture, because of climate change, soil impoverishment, water scarcity, genetic difficult, you know, all of those things are things that should grieve us and that we should work Mm. towards a change. Mm. But there's no doubt that God occasionally takes us into outrageous moments of abundance. As you know, one of our Mm. most beautiful Arosha centers was a gift of a man who I sat next to on a plane for an hour, and that was ridiculous. And I, he came with a swimming pool, and I remember swimming in that pool once and thinking, this is ridiculous. This is (laughs) because the French church is used to scarcity and persecution over the centuries. And so, you know, this was kind of embarrassing to have a house with a pool. But You can't make sense of all of these things, can you, very Mm -hmm. easily. Gratitude is how we live wherever we find ourselves, is what Paul says. Mm. He's learnt in all conditions to rejoice. Mm -hmm. And we have to learn rejoicing. I don't know if that answers your question, but I I don't think our expectation should be for abundance. I think that's not the world we live in, nor the world that most people have ever lived in throughout human history. And should we find ourselves in the abundant place, then we are in a position of great temptation, according to Jesus, and difficulty, and we should be looking for its meaning. Mm. 
No, I think it's appropriate that it wouldn't have a even a question about abundance and scarcity wouldn't have a clean answer. And I think by the way you ask further questions is really the practice of faith of saying we move in closer to the mystery of God and not being able to tidy this up. And yet we press on with rejoicing and with faithfulness and and with hope. And that's our business. Like that's, <laughs> that's what we have to do today. There's a Wendell Berry quote about that. Like, I will choose joy, even though I know all the information, <laughs> like that we know all these things. And, and yet the more we know, the more we have to lean in, that we lean into that place of promise. So I guess in closing, is there anything you'd want to share, anything particular like that you'd want to say or things you're working on now that you're excited about or you want to let people know about? Any last thoughts for, for our time together? I think what's on my heart is that it's still the case that conservation is a niche concern in wider society. Mm -hmm. And certainly within the church, we've been very slow to understand that our reconciliation in Christ is a reconciliation personally for us Mm. and with each other and with creation. And so we have a lot to do on that. But I I am particularly concerned because proximity and age have now brought me back into conversation with many friends in the finance world. And I hear from them that they understand that unless we imagine and live a new economy that is not the extractive, destructive, short-term economy we are now living, Mm -hmm. we are essentially cooked. I mean, we Mm -hmm. are, the paths we are on are running us into walls that are within very short time frames of 50 to 100 years. So I think the challenge is that this concern for creation has to be mainstream. And part of that is, Sandra, finding new language, because the language of technique and data speaks to some, but not many. Mm -hmm. The language of the heart is a whole register that has been missing. And that's how most decisions get made for us Mm -hmm. all as people. And so we need the poets, the musicians. We need those with the ability to incarnate these convictions in multiple ways, not least round the table through Mm -hmm. hospitality, through the lived life of the church, through Mm -hmm. changing places, through all of these things. And we do need it as people set up investment funds, create businesses, and start to say, I cannot do this at the expense of creation, because if I am doing that, it's such a short-term thing. And how will my grandchildren live? I have eight grandchildren now, so this is a real question. They will be alive in 90 years. These are my actual family timeframes now. So we have to have the imagination to reform everything and to challenge each other. The church is one of the few people where business people and ecologists will stand alongside each other and worship. Mm. So we have to have a better and a wider conversation and be prepared for some pain and some explanations. But the church is the world's largest NGO and so present where biodiversity is scarce in the world and is a great sign of hope. But we have to start living and believing a biblical gospel. That's what we're working on, to discover what that means in all these places, Mm. to live it faithfully and then to carry a better story to a much wider audience.
Thanks so much for listening. Steadfast is a Harbor Media production. It was produced and edited by Mike Cosper and TJ Hester. It was mixed by Mark Owens and recorded by Seth Talley. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. And in the meanwhile, if you want to be part of this conversation, if you have a story about God's steadfast love, about God's comfort for you in dark times, you can share it with us by recording a voice note on your phone and email it to steadfastwithsandra at gmail.com. 